Well, tonight is, uh, <clears throat> tonight is Hot Topic Night at RUF. You may remember last fall we did a whole, whole series on, uh, on relationships. And tonight we're looking at the topic of sexuality, but in particular, yes, we're going to go there tonight. We're going to look at the topic of homosexuality. Uh, it would be, uh, well, let me say this. Why talk about this tonight? Well, uh, first of all, all of God's word matters for all of life. All of it does. And all of it speaks to us in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And the other reason why I think it's so important that we look at this is for this following reason. It would be disingenuine, disingenuous of me to preach through the book of Leviticus and then when to come to chapter 18 to skip over this chapter. Why? It just, I, would have, I, would, I would have no spine to do that. Does that make sense? Because uh, if you come to RUF long enough, we come to a text, we preach it. We don't shy away from it. We don't want to hide from it. We believe that there's something to be said about speaking the full counsel of God's Word, however hard it might be for us to stomach. Uh, I want this to really uh, uh, be said because I think that people would say, man, why, why, would you, why don't you just avoid it and not talk about it? Well, listen, uh, very early on in my pastoral ministry, I knew that this issue was going to be a tough one to pastor people through. I had a dear friend, I worked, uh, while I was in seminary, I worked at a restaurant called Cardwell's. Uh, it was uh, there in St. Louis where I went to school, and, one, and my best friend there was Josh. Josh was gay. And uh, he knew that I was, a sem- I was in seminary, and uh, he was my best friend there. Uh, it was awesome to talk with him because uh, he was somebody who had profound questions about his identity and about who God was and what God would say to him. And I found myself more often than not, having to do a whole lot of listening and not a lot of talking because I knew to shepherd him was going to be no easy task because this is such a deep, personal, and profoundly um, complex issue to sift through. You may know that. I mean, you might have friends that uh, are gay or struggle with same-sex attraction. You may have family members in in this room. I know that's the case. And uh, it is deeply personal to me as well. And so I simply say that to say this. If you think it's hard to hear and hard to, you know, sit in those seats tonight, I would easily trade positions with you. Does that make sense? It is harder to speak about. And just because I speak about things does not mean that they are easy to say. I must say this from the beginning. I need to give you guys a few caveats. One, first of all, by the way, we probably will go a few minutes longer tonight because of this topic. So if you need to go, you're not going to hurt my feelings at all. That's why we trimmed a song actually earlier to give us a little bit more time. But I want to say this. I am not satisfied uh, with the way that the current discourse is going over this matter. I believe that the Bible creates for us a distinct category than uh, the two main options that are often presented when we're looking at the topic of Christianity vis-a-vis homosexuality. What do I mean? Well, first, I think that there is one approach that's called what I might label it the traditional religious approach. It looks something like this. Focus on behavior, doing the right thing. What matters the most is external uh, code or law adherence. The problem, though, is that this creates pride and exclusion. It causes people to look down their nose at people with the refrain over and over again, clean up or stay out. 
It's often labeled in some ways. It's truth but no grace. But the problem is, is that grace absent of truth, I mean truth absent of grace rather, is no truth at all. The Bible, in other words, they would say, wants proper sexual behavior above all else, and therefore it sees homosexuality as the unforgivable sin and as the battle to go fight. I'm not convinced. I'm just not convinced. There's another side that says this. I might call this the progressive secular approach. This focuses on the personal internal desires of the individual. Sure, the Bible might be helpful, but it can't be used as a guide to direct our personal sexual ethics, more, I mean, much less to identify who we are. A gay sexual ethic is consistent, therefore, in this view with Scripture. Inclusivity and tolerance are prized. Its error is that it elevates grace but no truth. And grace devoid of truth is really not grace at all. I'm not convinced either of this approach. I do believe, and this is what you'll have to decide tonight, I do believe that the Bible presents a third and better way on this topic. And I hope that we can begin to see that. Lastly, I may, I don't know that I will, say things tonight that you don't like or that you disagree with. And I want you to know this, I am not trying to hate on anyone tonight, so to speak. Okay? Um, some things are hard to hear, like I said, but some things are even harder to say. As a pastor to college students, uh, the bulk of my work deals with talking to you all about the joys and frustrations of your sexualities. I do this because I love you. I do this because I love college students. And I want to listen. I want to extend care. And while I love college students, I may not agree with everything that a college student thinks or does. But to therefore think that because I disagree, I hate someone, is to make a most tragic and foolish step of logic. If I've learned, if I've taught you all anything in RUF through the years, it's over and over again that God Himself, while disagreeing with us, nevertheless comes and dies for us. The Bible also, though, goes a step further, that is, beyond mere disagreement, and is not afraid to call some things, are you ready? Wrong. Greed is wrong. Slander is wrong. Gossip is wrong. Rape is wrong. Murder is wrong. Oppression is wrong. The Bible doesn't merely disagree with these behaviors. It looks them square in the face and says, you are wrong. And so the question that I think is worth sitting with you tonight is this. When it comes to sexuality, we have to ask this question. Is it wrong to call something wrong? Because if it is, you will have a problem with the Bible in all areas of life. Disagreements and love are not opposites. I say this very simply because... I cannot stop you tonight from twisting my words into something that I don't mean. I don't think that would be fair and courteous of you, but I can't stop you from doing it. Does that make sense? I just need to say that from up front. But I want us to also begin to take a look at Leviticus 18 and see this. For us to really understand what is going on, particularly with verse 22, that is it. That is the pinnacle of this text tonight. I think that we need to understand three particular things. First of all, an identity assumed. That's our first point. Secondly, we want to look at some yeah buts. Now get your mind out of the gutter. That's not one, that's one T buts, but not two, okay? And, uh, and see thirdly, that grace goes there. 
So, an assumed identity. Look at some yeah buts and see that the grace of God goes there. Let's take a look. First of all, what do I mean when I speak of an assumed identity? Well, I may get repetitive when I say this every week. But the book of Leviticus assumes a context. It assumes that God has rescued a people to Himself all by sheer grace. Remember, He has brought them up out of Egypt. They are now at the foot of Mount Sinai and God has given through Moses them the law, which is what Leviticus is. And this happens, right? This happens in the context of sheer grace. These people did nothing to merit their rescue out of Israel. I mean, out of Egypt, rather. It was all by sheer kindness. Remember, they were helpless. They were oppressed. They did not have a perfect moral record. And God said, I will take you to me. Not because of anything that you've done, but because I delight in showing mercy and kindness to people who need it. That is first of all what you must see. And therefore, because that is the case, you have to see that the identity of the people who would have heard this message was first and foremost that they belonged to God. That the very identity marker, the person who said, who are you? What are you about? What is the center of your being? The answer to the question was this, I am the redeemed of the Lord. I am the one saved by His grace. That is who I am, and that is the thing that defines me. It is my identity. It is to answer that question, who are you? And that is who they should have said. And it is who we ourselves say as well. I want us to secondly see this, that this identity, though, is easily forgotten. If you'll notice there in uh, verses 3 and 4 in our text, you'll see this. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Why would this be there? Well, very simply, it was going to be easy for this group of people to forget who they were. To forget who they were. To forget that they were the Lord's. That they were His beloved. That, he, that they were the ones that His grace uh, was showered upon. And so when they forgot that, they would easily turn their hearts to the practices of the world surrounding them, which is what gets enumerated later on in our text. You saw those there, things like adultery, things like incest. We didn't read a lot about that. It's that large chunction that we skip. I try to just give us a little snippet in verse 6. But it talks also about uh, bestiality homosexuality, as well as um, adultery. All of these practices were very common in the world surrounding them. And God is saying, because you are mine though, do not walk in those ways. Do not give yourself over to those practices. Why? Here's why. You see, when God establishes a people to Himself, He also gives them His law to protect them. His law to cause them to flourish. His law to give them a way to succeed and to uh, function as they were originally intended to function. And that is the law that God gives. It is what we have read. Now, I think this is very, very important. Because if you think about it like this, how many of you have ever bought a car and one of the things that you notice that comes with it is the car manual? If you were to open up that manual, it is, a, it is law from the manufacturer, from the maker that says... Change the oil every three to 5,000 miles. 
Don't put 87 octane in it. Put only 93 octane in it. Hey, listen, you're going to need a tune-up on your transmission, you know, every 80,000 miles or whatever. And if you abide by these things, the what? The car functions properly like it was intended to. The same applies to this here, that, that God is giving us a way in His Word to, to protect and to defend His original intent for our persons, for our personhood, and that includes our sexuality. What is that standard that He gives? We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where Paul, I mean, where the writer says this. He says that our sexuality, when it is expressed uh, properly and rightly, is always in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. That is the norm. And that is the thing that the whole of Scriptures is out to protect. Why? Because therein lies our flourishing. If you avoid it, it's like pouring Cairo syrup or Aunt Jemima syrup straight into your gas tank and expecting your car to run well. It's not the way that it was intended. This is why we see in Leviticus 18 a sexual ethic laid out. God is saying, you are mine. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And because you are my people, don't take up the practices in the surrounding culture. That is what we talked about. Is, uh, why he spells it out in verse 3. Y'all, here's my point. What's the point of all this? When God calls us to Himself, He also sets us out for a purpose. And that purpose is to flourish as we were intended to be as men and women. Namely, that is how we are to reflect who we are to the world around us. Now, what would this have to be for any bearing on us? Why would this assumed identity that we belong to the Lord, why would that be so important for us today? Well, I think it's very simple. The Bible never lets us reduce our identity down to our sexualities. Think about that. The Bible never lets us say, hey, here's who I am as a person. I'm straight or I'm gay. I struggle with uh, incest or bestiality. The Bible looks at us and goes, nope, I won't let you do that. Not if you're mine. And I think that is so important because I know the cultural era that we live in that we are so easily apt to reduce who we are as persons down to our sexual identities, down to an orientation. And I'm saying, the Scriptures are basically saying, you've got too high a view of your sexuality. You need to notch it and ratchet it down a little bit because to do so is actually, are you ready, to demean the entirety of your personhood. Your sexuality can't bear the weight of your total personhood. Imagine it being this. Imagine somebody saying, I am Ryan and I am a brother. Right? I mean, it's like, that's ridiculous. I'm so much more than a brother. I'm so much more than a father. I'm so much more than a son. I'm so much more than a campus minister. I am so much more than a married man. I'm so much more than an Anderson. You know what I am? And you know what you are if you are in Christ? You are a beloved son of daughter of the Most High King. And that is the thing that defines you. Listen, this is very, very important. Because you, even if you are not a Christian, listen to me. If you have non-Christian friends and you are a Christian or you are not a Christian, listen. You have a dignity and a worth that is shot through the universe and back. It's that valuable. Why? Because you are an image bearer of God whether you are a Christian or not. 
If you do not believe in Christianity, that's another topic altogether. But even if you don't, you bear God's image. And because of that, you are of infinite worth and value to Him. That is so, so important for our discussion. That is what He wants us to get across. Listen, some people would say this, many of us, gay or straight, reduce our personhood down to our sexuality. I'm nobody if I'm not gay. I'm nobody if I can't have sex, and so on. But what is interesting is that sex in the Scriptures is always a pointer to something else. It's never meant to be the end. As one campus minister puts it, our sexualities do not define us as persons, rather they celebrate it in the context of marriage. That is massively important for the discussion today. Well, it's here that we have lots of questions, especially when it comes to the topic of our cultural moment, homosexuality. And it's at this point that a series of questions begin to rise and objections come forth to the surface. And so we turn now to a series of, yeah, but what about this? Well, there's, this, there, I, there's no way I can be comprehensive and answer every question about what the Scriptures say with respect to homosexuality tonight. But I do think that I can highlight maybe the one, two, or three top objections that I hear. And see if you've heard something like this, or you yourself may hold an objection like this. First one. Well, that's just your interpretation. As my friend Les Newsom uh, points out, a former campus minister at Ole Miss, he says that as soon as you put forward this view of the Bible, somebody might quickly respond, Well, Ryan, that's just your interpretation. I know other people who say other things. Well, I think the way to respond to this is, is you're right. I mean, people do have different views on things. But my question for you is, are you saying that just because there are multiple interpretations of the data, that both are equally right? I mean, is that what we're trying to say? I mean, what I would say is, is read the Scriptures for yourself. You see, read the scholarship. Really study this stuff. You're no worse the where because of it. And another way of putting it is, I mean, it's very simple. Either you are sitting in a chair right now or you're not. You see, you can't be both sitting in a chair and not sitting in a chair at the exact same moment. So somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong. And I think we don't like that because we live in a culture where to say something is wrong or to say something is right, we don't like the world of absolutes. But the Scripture is not afraid of our cultural moment, if that makes sense. You see what I'm saying? So that would be the first thing, is that read, study, think. Don't take my word for it. Read the Scriptures. Read the scholarship. Come ask me questions and we can talk about this. Please believe me. I have thought about this topic for hours on end and read several, several books on this topic and we can talk about that if you want. The second objection, especially when it comes to Leviticus chapter 18, is this. Ready? Ryan, do you eat shrimp and wear polycotton blends? Why? Because some people will say, especially about this text, Ryan, uh, do you know, you, you realize that both of those are forbidden too in the book of Leviticus. I mean, don't Christians eat shrimp and pork barbecue? And, you know, don't they wear rayon? Uh, so, I mean, you know, I don't know if anybody wears rayon anymore, but um, I did when I was in middle school or something like that. In short, the logic goes like this. Many would say that certain Christians are guilty of picking and choosing what scriptures to support and which ones to reject. Is this the case here? Hang with me on this. Take your thinking cap and put it on, okay? Y'all are old enough to understand this, so I'm going to lay out an argument, okay? Here we go. 
first of all, one of the things that we have to see and that we have seen over and over in the book of Leviticus is that there are, in fact, certain laws that are no longer enforced for Christians. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. Young males don't have to be circumcised. And barbecue really is okay to eat. So why do some laws get set aside and others get held on to? Well, there's a very, very simple answer to this. You have to look at what the New Testament does with these Old Testament laws. Therein lies the key. Sometimes the New Testament changes things, and sometimes the New Testament upholds what was in the Old Testament. For example, there is a point where a religious leader asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment uh, in, the, you know, in law and prophets? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and this, and a second that is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus here is citing the Old Testament. And that little bit about loving your neighbor, do you know where it comes from? Leviticus chapter 19. Jesus here shows us that some laws are in fact still in effect from the book of Leviticus. In fact, nobody is ready to throw out Leviticus 19.19 as that which is good for the world. We, we, we love love your neighbor, right? Well, on the flip side, there are certain laws that the New Testament does in fact set aside. We'll see why in a second. But for example, in Mark chapter 7, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask Him why they don't ceremonially wash their hands when they eat. And Mark responds with this. He tells us about what Jesus says. Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And are you ready? Thus he declared all foods clean. So, with a quick word, Jesus has just done away with all of the food laws that we've talked about a few weeks ago. So eat up and enjoy your barbecue. Why can Jesus do this? Well, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection fulfills what those laws are pointing to. Now lastly, you're going, okay, I can about keep the hat on for 30 more seconds. Here it is. We're not talking about food though, are we? We're talking about sexuality. Where do we speak about human sexuality and proper expression of it in the New Testament? And again, we go to Jesus' lips. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is answering the question about divorce. And what He responds with speaks about what He views as normative and absolute. He says this, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Jesus is saying, the biblically outlined practice for sexuality is between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. This reaffirms and constitutes the biblical sex ethic that Leviticus itself and other parts of the Old Testament teach. Here's my point. To level the charge that Christians are picking and choosing is in one sense dead on. It's dead on. Why? Because that's exactly what the New Testament does. 
but not in a willy-nilly, random, and unreasoned way. The reason for picking and choosing, though, is because the New Testament sees some laws as no longer applying because of what Christ has done, and some still applying. If it is reaffirmed, then it still applies. This objection, I think, frankly, suffers from not really reading the text, the Bible, on its own terms and working hard to understand it. So, class, here we go. If somebody ever throws to you the idea about Leviticus, you now have a way to respond to that and say, yeah, the reason is why? Because the New Testament itself upholds certain sexual ethic practices and then it discards other laws. That's the answer in the discussion. That's how we reason that. Does that make sense? At least from the text. Thirdly, and... uh, Hmm... I gotta keep moving. I gotta skip this point. It's so massive. Actually, I can't skip it. I'll have to skip something else. It's. I mean, when I say it, you're gonna go. Thank you for not skipping this. Okay. Thirdly and lastly, who is the Bible to say? That's a huge one. That's a massive one. This too brings up a great point. Ready? If two people of the same gender love each other, who is anyone to speak against this? Shouldn't love be protected? and support it at all costs. Listen, I want to be very tender. The more I've talked to students, the more I see this as being the heart of the issue. I really, really do. And may I speak to you ever so kindly. What, if, uh, if this is a view that one holds, what is your authority on how mankind functions best? Where do you go to to get your answer to that question? How does he flourish and thrive and find true joy? Where do you go to find the answers to that question? Do you make them up? Do you define them? Or does someone else? How you answer that question reveals so, so much. A few stories to illustrate my point. Not all things that we love are good for us. If you've ever cared for or been close to a substance abuse addict, you know this. Their love for heroin is harming no one else. But what happens when the love for something hurts the lover? Then what? Some will say, but that is hurting them. Being in a relationship with someone else on the same gender doesn't hurt that person. And I say, well, where do you get your definition of what is hurtful to someone or not? Do you see that? Where are you getting that definition from? What is hurtful? Does that make sense? Because here's the listen. The Bible consistent testimony is that our sexuality and relationships, when you're in one, work best and flourish across the genders. So just so you know, there really are people. I just read an article today. She was not a Christian. She's not a Christian. Okay? She has felt severely hurt and damaged by a a same-sex attraction relationship that she was in. You see, so we've got to account for that sort of data. How do we deal with this? Then lastly, I have a friend who was married and went through an affair. Her choice to love and to connect sexually with another man, another person outside of her marriage, did in fact do great harm to them. To them. Not including their spouse. Not including the other person. 
And I just want you to see this, that all of our sexualities are utterly and absolutely broken. Whether you are heterosexual or, or gay or however you want to label yourself, every single one of us, mine included, is absolutely broken, okay? And, and for us to say that love is all that matters is to deny the reality of our brokenness. And this is why God in Leviticus gives us, He protects us. He's showing us the way forward, not to hurt us, but because He longs for us to flourish. And these practices break the practicer, whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not. Listen, this is heavy stuff. It's hard stuff. It's not stuff that's easy to swallow. And through my life, I have pastored and cared for many who struggle with this. Is there any hope in all of this as we speak about the brokenness of our sexualities? I believe there is. Uh, I want us to go here. When, um, when we begin to think about this, we say in RUF all the time that God's grace comes to us freely. We do nothing to earn it. And that means several things. But for our topic today, our broken sexualities are not the thing that keep us away from Jesus. You need to underscore that. He comes to us freely in spite of our brokenness. If you've been around at all for our study, we have learned that all people are in the same lot. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is hopeless without Jesus. Hear me well. Are you ready? I'm about to say something massive. Listen to me. And only the atoning work of Christ on the cross and His righteousness that comes by faith in Him will ever save us. Listen, that means you don't go to hell for being gay. You go to hell by not bending the knee to Jesus. That also means you don't go to heaven for being straight. You go to heaven for trusting and loving and committing your life to Jesus. Therein lies the issue. And this is where I find this so helpful. All of us must die to follow Jesus. That's the whole point. We die letting our sexuality, whole or broken, being the thing that we look to to save us. Only Jesus can do that. Therefore, what does this mean? I want to give you a series of practical helps that I think are very, very important. First of all, it means and it reminds us that we did and do nothing to receive God's grace. Come one, come all. Everybody has got access to Jesus regardless of orientation or sexual brokenness. I didn't speak much tonight about incest and zoophilia, but hey, if that's your struggle, come to Jesus. There's healing and hope for you tonight. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And nobody is so good that they don't need it. Secondly, for all of us, the gospel crushes any pride and hate that we might harbor to those who are different than us. Christians are called to love. No, I'll go in even closer than to love their neighbors. They are to love their enemies. Full stop, period. This means that if you suffer from an expressed or a repressed homophobia, it must die. It must die. The gospel crushes it. It smatters at the smithereens. Why? Because you didn't deserve God's grace. And He extended it to you. Thirdly, it also means that every Christian is called to a life of cross-bearing. I think the one reason 
that the LGBT community is so put off by the gospel of God's grace in Jesus is because of the rampant hypocrisy that they see in those who claim to be Christians, myself included. Jesus says, in essence, following me will cost you your life. Does the watching world see and know that with the entirety of our lives, especially the way we handle our sexualities, that we live that out? Or do they see a cheap grace on display? If you take the name Christian, it's your life displaying a crossless Christianity. It should not be. Fourthly, love. Love must be our ethic. Both ways. Do we have the category of loving someone deeply even though we disagree with them? If not, you have no idea what it means to be a Christian. At the heart of Christianity is a Christ who loved us when He totally disagreed with us, but we believed in the way that we lived out our lives. Is this true of us? Can you live your, give your lives away for those who actually hate you? Jesus did with you. It must be our ethic. Christians, you have no right to judge those who are outside the church. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you are not at liberty to mistreat and level final judgment on anyone's soul. That is why the behavior of Westboro Baptist Church is so God-awful damnable. Why? If someone gay or straight isn't a Christian, you are called to love them like Jesus did, with mercy, with justice, and with grace. Look at the way that Jesus handled the woman at the well. She was a sexually loose woman, but Jesus did not condemn her. He welcomed her. He spoke with her with compassion. He sought to know her and desired to show her grace. Did He agree with her behavior? No, emphatically no. But that did not lead Him to being a jerk. He was full of grace and truth with her. And I believe that that is the third way. Listen, the vision of the church that Jesus called, to, called us to is to be the place where people with all sorts of broken sexualities run to, not away from. Because they know there are healing waters there. And it is much to our shame if you are a Christian that that is not the case. Lastly, the last takeaway, the great hope of the gospel is that people can change. Grace changes everything. And there is hope for you tonight. There is hope for me. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus welcomes you. He goes to work on you to change you. In fact, when you come to Him, you are called a new creation. And we are totally, we, are, we, are we totally restored this side of heaven? No. No one is. But the promise is certain. God will not stop the renewal project that He begins in each one of us. In the C.S. Lewis classic children's stories, there's a character named Eustace. He's the mean cousin of the Pevensey children. He delights in making them feel awful. Well, one day in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace finds himself turned into a dragon. And the reason he's turned into a dragon is because he finds himself in love with a treasure. And loving the treasure, having greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he became a dragon. Well, one day Eustace wakes up as a dragon and is dead set to claw his own skin off. He reasons that if he can just claw the skin off, surely the boy that he once was will surface. And as he cleans, clean, claws his skin off one layer after another, more and more dragon skin appears. His healing was not what he expected. Well, one day Eustace comes face to face with the powerful King Lion Aslan. And longing to be rid of his dragonly flesh, he turns to the mighty lion and Aslan spoke, You'll have to let me undress you. 
Oh, I was afraid of the claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty, pretty nearly desperate now, Eustace says. So I lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. I turned into a boy again, Lewis continues. It would be nice, and it would be fairly true to say, from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. But, to be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. That is the gospel. By His grace, not because we earn it. He is remaking us, every single one of us, to make us more like Jesus, to remind us of our sonship. He is restoring us to our former identity, His true sons and daughters. Are there relapses? Oh yes, to be sure. But in the end, His ways with us will prevail. We shall be brought home. We shall be made home at last. Speed the day, dear Lord. Speed the day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We ask that you would take these things and burn them deep into our hearts. Help us now to sing of your amazing love and your amazing grace. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.